Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this time, women artists as they saw themselves. Jennifer Higgy on what the self-portrait has meant to women painters through history. And a little later on, we'll hike, both literally and fancifully, the goat ledge that is the Chemin de Nietzsche on the French Riviera. But first this time, Jennifer Walsh has been patrolling the wobbly territory between humans and the things humans call things. It's a territory that this time shelters both Britney Spears and a certain robo-Saudi citizen. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things No Things. In 2017, Saudi Arabia awarded citizenship to a robot called Sophia. Yes, that's correct. Saudi Arabia gave a robot, a non-human, citizenship. Not to be upstaged, the United Nations followed suit a month later, giving Sophia the title of Innovation Ambassador, making her the first robot to be given a United Nations role. Fantastic publicity indeed for Saudi Arabia, the UN, but most of all for Hansen Robotics, the company that makes Sophia. You may have seen Sophia on the news. She's a humanoid robot, designed to look like an attractive mid-twenties woman, albeit one with a perspex skull through which you can see her mechanical workings. She's got breasts and a slim little waist. Her face was apparently designed as a combination of Queen Nefertiti, Audrey Hepburn and Amanda Hansen, the latter being the wife of David Hansen, CEO of Hansen Robotics. Quite the pedigree. Sophia is a social robot, a robot designed to be able to chat with people, to recognise and respond to human facial expressions and emotions. Hanson Robotics' website describes Sophia as an agent for exploring human-robot experience in service and entertainment applications. She's a robot to chat with when you're lonely, to entertain you when you're bored. I thought of Sophia this week as the pop star and icon Britney Spears gave a statement to a court in the US regarding her conservatorship. For those not aware of the case, Britney was placed under legal conservatorship in 2008 after some mental health struggles resulted in her being briefly sectioned in a psychiatric institution. The conservatorship has remained in place to this day meaning that Britney's father and an attorney have had complete control over her life and assets for the last 13 years. Their control has been invasive and absolute. In one particularly heartbreaking moment in her statement to the court last week, Britney described how she has been unable to marry or have a child because her conservators will not allow it. Conservatorship is normally reserved for people who are severely mentally impaired, for example, people suffering from dementia. Yet, throughout her conservatorship, Britney's conservators have agreed that she's well enough to record and release albums, perform countless concerts, act in TV shows and tour the world. To entertain us when we're bored. A country gives a robot citizenship, moving her out of the category of non-human into an ill-defined grey area. 
and a court takes away a woman's autonomy, pushing her into that same grey area. The distance between human and non-human is far less than we think. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things, and the music you heard was the sound of an AI trained on Britney Spears by Jennifer Walsh. Watch out on Twitter at CultureFilePod for the link to the playlist of all the other episodes from Jennifer Walsh. The writing of one historical wrong that's growing pace with events such as the long-postponed Artemisia Gentileschi exhibition in London is the historical erasure of women artists. That 2020 show, for example, was the National Gallery's first-ever large-scale retrospective of a woman artist, despite the rediscovery of Gentileschi's art in the 1970s. In her book, The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution and Resilience, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits, Critic and Free editor at large Jennifer Higgy introduces us to women artists who were to various degrees edited out of male-dominated art history's picture. Higgy chose to focus on the one genre for which women artists historically could find easy access, self-portraiture. Our journey begins with a painting from 1548 and if you visit at Culture File Pod on Twitter right now you can see that image. Rachel Andrews spoke to Jennifer Higgy about painting in and painting out. It's a very small painting. It looks quite modest. It's slightly clumsy. You can see she's still learning her craft. So this is Katerina van Hemmersen, who's a Flemish painter. This is a self-portrait that she painted in 1548. And we know she painted it then because very handily she inscribed it. I, Katerina van Hemmersen, painted this in 1548. She um, grew up in Antwerp, which at that time was really booming as an art centre because it was where the first um, stock exchange began. And so where there are banks, art booms because people want to collect art. She depicts herself at the easel painting a virgin. A lot of young women for centuries would often paint themselves painting virgins, the Virgin Mary. Um, to sort of emphasise that they were virtuous women themselves, so that they wouldn't be seen as loose women, even though they were artists. But what is really fascinating about this painting is that it was the first time that we know of in art history that an artist has painted themselves at the easel. There had been some great self-portraits by men by this stage, but the men tended to depict themselves in quite a heroic way. They looked quite almost Christ-like. But Katerina van Hemmersen is painting herself at work. And of course, we don't know what her thoughts were. You know, she didn't write anything down. So I'm just guessing here. But when I look at this painting, I tend to think that this is a young woman saying to the world, I might only be 20. I have no political agency. I'm a young woman in the 16th century. But look at me. I can be an artist.
the really interesting things I think about um, women artists of the past is that they were excluded from so many types of painting because in the main they were barred from the academy, they couldn't do apprenticeships, they weren't allowed to work on scaffolds in the Renaissance, um, they couldn't go to life classes. You know, they, they really struggled in a way to, to learn their trade. It's a very consistent thing right through from the 16th century to onwards was that if a woman had access to a mirror and a palette, some painting materials, then she could paint herself because she was always available. I loved finding out more about Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. She was born in Paris to an artist who was not very good, a male artist who was not very good, and I think her mum was a hairdresser. And so she didn't grow up with wealth or anything like that, but she was a remarkable autodidact. She learned her trade by painting pictures, copying pictures from the Louvre, and by the age of about 15 or 16, she was already working as a professional artist, and she became Marie Antoinette's favourite artist. She painted over 30 portraits of the royal family, but of course when the revolution came in 1789, she was in extreme danger because she was the favourite of Marie Antoinette. And so she managed to escape France, even though she wasn't meant to leave. She had been married to a man who gambled away pretty much every cent that she had ever earned. So she arrived in um, Florence with hardly any money, absolutely broke, traumatized with her young daughter, not sure where her next meal was gonna come from. And what does she do? She sits down and she paints a really cheerful self-portrait at the easel. We can see her in this painting in from 1790. She's dressed in the colors of Marie Antoinette's family. She's actually pictured herself painting a portrait of Marie Antoinette. She was painting this because one of the great patrons in Florence at the time was Marie Antoinette's brother. And one of the really wonderful things about this self-portrait, one of the many wonderful things, is that she depicts herself smiling. And at this point in time in France, there was an absolute ban on painting yourself smiling or painting other people smiling. In France, the king had really bad teeth. And so <laughs> he, I don't think that he really wanted to see portraits of people with gleaming white teeth. She was a very canny self-promoter and she knew that it would cause a scandal as she pictured herself smiling, but she also knew that it would make people notice, sit up and notice her pictures. And she got lots of commissions as a result. She led a remarkable life. She died in her late 80s um, and her 12 or 13 years in exile during the French Revolution, she traveled all over Europe. She painted royalty throughout Europe and aristocrats. She painted six or 700 portraits, I think it was. And um, she finally moved back to France after the revolution and she spent her last days in a village in France. She was wealthy and famous. And she actually wrote a autobiography, which became a bestseller. And I was in France a few years ago and I came across this huge exhibition of her work at the Grand Palais in Paris. And I was like, who is this? And I was wandering around and I couldn't believe it. How many paintings she'd painted, how famous she was in her day. And it was the first major exhibition devoted to Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun that had ever been staged in France. So it had taken since, you know, the early 19th century to 
like 2015 before she was properly recognised. It would have been so great if they'd all signed their paintings really visibly because a lot of them didn't bother signing their paintings. Often after they died, the paintings by many of these women were immediately or very soon attributed to male artists and sort of got absorbed into collections that way. It's really only been in you know recent times that many of these paintings by brilliant women have been properly attributed to them. Artemisia had a remarkable life. Artemisia Gentileschi, a truly great Baroque painter, much better known now since this huge, wonderful exhibition at the National Gallery in London. Her father was a painter and that was why she had access to training. She suffered terribly when she was uh, 17. She was raped by a colleague of her father's, who was also her painting tutor, and this went to trial. It was a horrible, long drawn out trial. She was tortured during it to see if she was telling the truth. We actually know what happened in the trial because there's a 300 page document. Her rapist was convicted, which was quite unusual for the time, and he was banished from Rome, but he was friends with the Pope, so he didn't really get banished at all. And she was married off, marriage of convenience, also to show that she was a, you know, a woman of virtue, which is ironic considering that she was the one who'd been violated. Um, she had five children, four of them died. Artemisia, she pulled herself up by the bootstraps. She was illiterate at the time of the trial. Uh, she taught herself to read and write as well as to become one of the great painters of the Baroque. She ended up becoming like great friends with Galileo, who she had a long correspondence with. Um, she painted for all of the great sort of nobility in Italy. Her father had been invited to England by Charles II, and he invited Artemisia to come over and work alongside him. And it's probably in London where she painted this um, great self-portrait in 1638. She depicts herself as the allegory of painting, and there were very codified rules at the time for what language allegories would use. And, for example, if you had an allegory of painting, which this is, so she's depicting herself as embodying painting. She had to have unkempt hair and wear this very particular pendant around her neck and be placed in a certain way. And so she's, she's following the rules of the day, but then she's sort of blowing them apart as well because she's depicting herself as the embodiment of art. She's too busy to look out at the viewer. She's looking up at the painting. It's an incredibly active painting. We're looking at it from downwards, looking up, and we can see her, you know, she's almost sweating. She's working so hard. She's disheveled. She's holding her palette high up. She's wielding her paintbrush. You know, it's a brilliantly active animated picture of a woman at work in the 17th century. Leonore Carrington a fantastic British Mexican surrealist and and she grew up in great wealth actually in England and she was expected to follow the life of an aristocratic young girl she didn't she at the age of 18 she met Max Ernst at a dinner party in London the Max Ernst the surrealist 
He was in his 40s. They ran away to Paris and then they lived in the south of France and they painted alongside each other. You know, the, the surrealists were interesting. I mean, despite being surrealists and being, you know, wild of imagination, they were also quite conservative. Often women were just relegated to being muses or beautiful wild, wild childs. You know, Leonora Carrington was young and very beautiful and she was a wild child and so she sort of ticked all of those boxes. But in later years, when she was asked about her role as a muse, she said, I had no time to be a muse. I was too busy becoming an artist. So in 1938, she paints this picture. She's in her 20s. She pictures herself inside, that her hair is blowing as if she's in a high wind. She's in white jumpers. And for her, she always loved animals. She was a vegetarian who always was very passionate about animals. And she always said that some of her animals were her best friends. And so behind her, framing her head, is a white rocking horse, which is, to my mind, it's symbolic of you know, the freedom of the horse, but it can't go anywhere because it's a rocking horse. And this is almost like what she's saying about herself as a woman at the time, you know, that she's, her freedom is constrained. But out the window, we can see a wild horse galloping into the distance. And to my mind, this is her sort of self-portrait of her soul, you know, her, her free, the freedom of her soul. And in front of her is a very strange beast. It's a lactating hyena, which she's holding her hand out to. And it's almost as if she, she wants to be suckled by this wild animal. Um, so it's a wonderfully strange and, and potent self-portrait from 1938. And of course, you know, within a few years, she would be living in Mexico, trying to escape the war. She ended up in Madrid, where she had a terrible time. She was placed in a lunatic asylum. Her parents, bizarrely, sent her nanny in a submarine to rescue her. But um, she escaped her nanny. Uh, she ended up marrying a Mexican diplomat um, as a marriage of convenience, got to Mexico, divorced him, then married someone else and lived the rest of her life in Mexico City, which she absolutely loved and became one of the great surrealist artists of the 20th century. John, her brother was the very famous Augustus John, and he was hugely famous in his day. I mean, he was like a, a Damien Hirst or a Tracy Emin in his day. He was larger than life. He was very talented. He slept with everyone. He had multiple wives and millions of children. His sister, Gwen John, was very quiet, but I think that she had a very turbulent soul. She painted alongside him at the Slade, the Slade School of Art in London. But she soon moved to Paris. And when she was in Paris, she modelled for Rodin, the great sculptor Rodin. And they actually had a very long affair. Um, but he had multiple affairs um, throughout his life. And she was absolutely besotted with him. And uh, she wrote some rather heartbreaking letters to him. And so she, she lived her life with her sort of unrequited love, really, for, for Rodin. 
but she was a remarkable artist and she did show during her lifetime and she did achieve some fame. She sold work to the Tate um, during her lifetime and she was in some very important exhibitions such as the Armory, Armory Exhibition um, in New York. But, but in many ways she was sort of her own worst enemy in that she often would be um, expected to send some paintings over for an exhibition but then they would never arrive because she felt that they weren't up to scratch. Interesting now, I think that she is held in far greater esteem than her brother. This picture was painted in 1902 when she was still living in London. She's a young woman. You can sense that there's something very steely and strong. She's looking out at us. She's not smiling. And she pictures herself against a, a rather drab brown background. But she has this wonderfully vivid red shirt, which I think is symbolic of the passion of her soul and, and the fierceness of her temperament. You know, there are terrible stories of the Royal Academy, women beating on the door of the Royal Academy for years and years and years in London. But the Slade School was one of the first schools in London to really allow women to study. And they were great champions of women artists, actually, although there were very strict rules. And we've got to remember that when she painted this, you know, women didn't have the vote. You know, they were pretty much considered the property of the husbands, fathers and brothers. And this is a wonderful self-representation of autonomy and strength. Jennifer Higgy there, and the reporter was Rachel Andrews. Jennifer Higgy's book, The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution and Resilience, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits, is out now. The Chemin de Nietzsche is both a stark philosophical calling and a nice place on the Riviera for a mini-break. How is it possible to reconcile these two seemingly extreme positions? For our correspondent Liam Cagney, who's gotten ahead of the crowds and restarted foreign travel, the answer comes in the diminutive form of the world's most Irish pop singer. A few weeks ago, holidaying on the French Riviera, I took a train along the coast from Nice to Ez. I was following in the footsteps of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. In the 1880s, sojourning here because of his terrible health, Nietzsche used to ramble for hours along the gravel hillside overlooking the sea, inevitably while formulating some mad philosophical work in progress. One of these walking trails leading from a pebble beach up to the village of Ez, high on a hilltop, is now in his honour called the Chemin de Nietzsche, the Nietzsche Trail. I still remember the thrill of discovering Nietzsche in my early twenties. Reading one page of this most radical of thinkers could dispel depression, shining radiant light on my life. Nietzsche's wild philosophy teaches affirmation. It teaches us to oppose the spirit of gravity, to pass beyond nihilism, to embrace life as ceaseless open-ended becoming. I suppose in this way Nietzsche is sort of like motivational speaking for weirdos. For me, as one who growing up in Ireland never felt like he fit in, the crux of Nietzsche is to seek our origin not in the past but in the future. To invent ourselves not through a past form but through a form without prior image. 
2000 monotheistic years had proclaimed, we are all the same, be the same or else. To which Nietzsche replies, and here I'm paraphrasing, no, blessed are the freaks, for the freak shall inherit the earth. Disembarking the train, I followed the signs. I clambered up the early stages of the meandering path. The heat was blazing, the ascent steep, and I was a panting, sweating mess before long. It was clear that I'd underestimated the path's difficulty. How had a sickly and feeble German academic managed it? I was bloody dehydrated and near exhausted. Mercifully, I came across a tree-fringed boulder with a cleft in the middle, some shade. I crouched inside it for a rest. As I waited for my heartbeat to relax, I scanned the coastline below. Beyond the trees, beyond the railway line, by the beach, there was a pink villa. I recognised it. How? Then the penny dropped. Ten years ago, driving along the Côte d'Azur on holiday with my then-girlfriend Emma, she had made me stop the car for a photo. She said it was Bono's house. Bono has a villa here in Ez, at the foot, no less, of the Nietzsche Trail. How strange, how unwelcome. I resumed walking. I was determined to press on and to expel from my mind all Bono thoughts. Irish, all too Irish. I was here to commune with Nietzsche. Now, as the path opened onto a spectacular vista of the shimmering Mediterranean, I took from my bag my battered copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. To conjure Nietzsche, I began reading Zarathustra aloud. You look up when you feel the need for elevation, and I look down because I am elevated. Who among you can laugh and be elevated at the same time? Whoever climbs the highest mountains laughs at all tragic plays and tragic seriousness. A French couple, looking embarrassed and avoiding eye contact, passed by in the opposite direction. At once it struck me. I was being just like Bono. Wasn't this just what Bono would do? Somehow on this blazing hillside open onto the heavens, I was indeed becoming a hybrid, a freak. Nietzsche famously wrote that man is a rope stretched between the animal and the overman. Now I too was a rope, a rope stretched between Nietzsche and Bono, a burlesque tug-of-war between the subtlest of thinkers and the most bombastic of singers, a rope spanning an abyss. The more like Nietzsche I tried to be, the more like Bono I became. How had that happened? I had somehow crossbred Nietzsche with Bono and Bono with Nietzsche, a good Zuropean. Eventually I reached the old village of Aix-sur-Mer on the hilltop, but I didn't stay long. Instead I redescended and spent the rest of the afternoon on the pebble beach. I reflected on what had happened. To be Irish in this age is indeed to be stretched between Bono and Nietzsche, between modesty writ large and radicalness writ neatly. Should we pile up our familiar platitudes like turf, or should we strike out on a ridiculous road without destination? I still hadn't found what I was looking for. I watched the waves churning beautifully, violently, always different, always alike. Dusk approached. On a faraway hilltop I spotted a white dome, an observation point, a remote telescope. Why couldn't I just be a stargazer? Why couldn't I just be the stars?
Liam Cagney there, walking du Côté de Chez Bono. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. But keep either or both eyes out for this month's Culture File Debate, which will be appearing in moving picture form on the RTE Culture website. We've been inspired this time by the pandemic slogan, We Will Dance Again, to gather a panel of choreographers and dance artists who've been exploring the world of dance as a social force. That's the Culture File Debate, wherever you get your podcasts and indeed wherever you get your video panels, as long as that's the RTE Culture website. See you soon.